in our series in John, in John chapter 15, with a message that I believe is, is, is connected to us, because in the, I put a title, I don't usually have these grand titles, but this one's called The God-Connected Life, or The God-Connected People, I think is on your outline, God-Connected Life, but John 15, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, it's, it's a good portion here, but I think it's important that we gain all of it. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen here this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Aren't you glad for that? That once you know Jesus, you believe in Jesus, and you know, I believe you're going to heaven. But God has more for us. Amen? And look what he says in verse 4. He adds to it. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Wow! Okay. We'll, we'll get more into that part next week. Verse 8. But this is my... But this... By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove, my, prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's good news, and we're going to get to that part later. It's like one of those things that gives you a blurb, you know, what's coming next, and you're like, oh, I have to wait till next week, like the chosen. Now we have to wait for all this. All right, okay. Abiding in the vine. So this is the phrase that we've heard in church, right? If we've been around any length of time, and what it means, it means to stay connected to Jesus. When Pam and I went to the Grand Canyon, we rented a car, a Hyundai Sonata. And we got in this, we didn't know what car we were getting, and it's a drive. We flew into Las Vegas, and we drove to the Grand Canyon, the, the south rim where we were staying, about three and a half, three, three hours and 45-minute drive. And we were just enjoying the desert. You know, we don't have, de well, eastern Washington is very similar, but nonetheless, we're driving and kind of enjoying the desert. You know, it's, it's got its own really kind of rough beauty that I, I really like. So we're driving through there, <clears throat> and I'm noticing all these buttons. You know, one's cruise control. And I thought, well, this is cool. I pushed cruise control. It's an adaptive cruise control. Now, how many have had a, have adaptive cruise control in your cars? Very nice, right? So when you get to a car, it'll go, and, you, and you're going faster than the car in front of you, it'll slow down and keep a distance. And you can set, you know, one, two, or three links, whatever you want. So I have it set in the middle. I'm like, oh, what does this other button do, you know? I push this other button, and all of a sudden, the steering wheel starts going all by itself. And I'm going, what is the deal here? Auto mode. So I just sat back in my seat. It took a while because I didn't trust it at first, you know. But what it does is it reads the lines on the road, and it just, and I was like, 
feeling it. It's like, this thing is staying right in the middle of the lane. It is staying, and it's staying perfect. Car in front of me, it'll break. The car stopped pretty quick, and it slammed on the brakes all by itself. And I'm like, it's coming soon, friends. You know, all you're going to have to do is punch in the GPS where you want to go and sit back, and your car will take you there. It's coming, I guarantee it. This, I, this, I, I wouldn't have believed it really entirely until I rode in this car. And I was like, this thing is actually pretty cool. But you know what? At first, I was really skeptical. I was not really comfortable with just letting go of the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. I was not about to sing that song, diving off the cliff on the other side of the road. But you know, that's, I think, a great illustration for what it means to abide in the vine, right? Because sometimes when we come to Christ, there are areas of our life that we really don't trust God with. Can I say that? We're not really willing to let go of the wheel and, and, and make sure that, but you know what? He is the master engineer designer of the thing. He's got the autopilot figured out. And sometimes we just need to trust in him. This thought of abiding in the vine reminds me so much of Paul's uh, great, really preachy message to the church in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, right? I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The branches, Paul says it very you know, perfectly, that I am now in Christ. I am the branch, and I need to remain in the vine. The branches can't separate themselves from the vine. If, if they are, they're destroyed. And, and this is the heart of being a disciple. The word disciple is, is really what comes to mind here when we think about abiding in the vine. Since the branch feeds the vines, the trunk, the branch feeds the vines, the, the, the vines take on the DNA of the branch. They take on the likeness. They produce the things the vine is producing. And I, I once heard of a rock group called the Disciples. I've heard of lots of people in culture use the word disciple for different things, but in this regard, to be a follower of Jesus means to really trust God on autopilot all the time, that he knows what he is doing. So it's being God-connected. It's That car was connected. You know, it had all the stuff connected to know what, it, all the sensors around it and the GPS to know where it was. It was really remarkable. One thing about that, though, all of that stuff can fail. You know, but Jesus never fails. The Bible tells us that he is the same yesterday, today, and for eternity. That the pre-existent eternal God is the, pre, is the eternal God moving forward. And he is now. I believe the reason that God has drawn our attention to this today is is because it's so, such a powerful concept, and if we were to grab onto it, all the victory that we would experience in our life personally and as a church. William Barclay, in his exhaustive work on the commentary of Gospel of Luke, writes this, and I want to read it for us. Um, two paragraphs. He says, It is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple. Hmm. To be a camp follower without being a soldier of the king. To be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight, i.e. Judas. Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a young man, younger man, and he said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. 
The teacher answered devastatingly, he may have been in my lectures, but he was not one of my students. There's a world of difference between attending lectures and being a student. It is one of the supreme handicaps of the church, that in the church there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. William Barclay wrote that. I thought, wow, that's kind of preachy, you know. Does Jesus really mean that? What does he mean by abiding in the vine? Well, let's talk about the disconnected. So these vines that don't bear fruit, they're cut off because the vine dresser is taking care of the vine. He doesn't want any dead ones connected to the vine. And there's some uh, things about that. Those vines only know demolition. How many know it's easy to do demolition? I've been on many job sites, and it's easy to take a sledgehammer and knock out a few walls. All you got to do is pack up a Jesse, fall full of muscles with a sledgehammer. Tell him, destroy that, it'll be destroyed. And he'll haul it off. I mean, he's just a big, tough, rough guy, right? He's strong. Demolition, though, isn't, in this regard, a good thing. Because these vines, all they know is being destroyed. There's some characteristics about these kind of things that don't produce. Number one, there is weak faith. And the sower and the seed illustration in Luke chapter 8, 13 is so perfect because those on the rocks grew quickly, right? But because they had no root, they sprang up quickly. They had no sustenance. They became dry and they died because there was nothing feeding them. There was no water. Weak faith comes on those. The similarities to the vine are so are so perfect here and we're looking at they dry up because they have no source another characteristic of these vines and in life and reality they also make bad choices i'm reminded of lot in genesis chapter 13 deciding to set his family and set his sights towards sodom and the source of wisdom in scripture says that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom Abiding in the vine requires this, and and Lot at the time didn't seem to have a lot of that going on. It wasn't until later that he realized his ill. There are so many benefits that are given to us by God from wisdom. When we hang on to his word, and when we stay in his word, and when we listen to what he has to say more than what our appetites desire. In fact, Proverbs 3.13 gives us quite a list. It says that uh, wisdom brings happiness. Wisdom uh, gives us life. It makes us strong. It helps us make good financial decisions, uh, strong, better than weapon, we- better than weapons, it says. It ensures stability, the reason for all sin, friends. The, the, the repercussions of it all, all bad financial choices, all relational issues, all marriages that suffer, all false securities that people have are all a result of sin, and it corrupts the vine. It has to be cut off. Another part of devastation or destruction of these, thirdly, is the inability to stand in trouble. Not only did these ones get cut off when the heat came or or the dry season came because they didn't bear fruit, they didn't stay connected to the vine, they were actually thrown into the fire. Proverbs 24.10 tells us that if we falter in times of trouble, how small is our strength? Consider this, friends. The last time you faced a big issue, a trial, or trouble in your life, Maybe it was this recent COVID illness or it was a, a financial issue or some relationship issues. They're so, so hurtful, right? When you suffered in those things or being defamed or being rejected or all of those things, how did you stand up under it? Sure, we all suffer and we all moan and complain a little bit. But if you evaluate how you responded to those trials, 
I bet you you will find an equivalent measure to how strong and connected to the vine you are. Coming to church is good, and I praise God that we gather. It's kind of like a celebration for Christians in a way. We go through all the week, and we kind of get beat up a little bit, don't we? And it's good to get together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we come, when we worship this morning, I, I sense the Holy Spirit in this place, you know. Jesus, no one higher. i just like, yes, Jesus. And we, we fellowship with the Spirit. We feel his presence, and that's good. But friends, my encouragement for you this morning and for all of us, myself included greatly so, is that we not forget the presence of God on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday Thursday. That we keep him in the forefront. The God-connected, though, they build up. So those that don't, they tear down, they destroy, but the God-connected build up. Number one, a true disciple will impact his or her world. The Great Commission going to all the world was for the spirit-filled believer. A true disciple really understands this, that we desire to, for people to know Christ, right? And, and those that are around us will see us affected because we're connected to the vine. If we're not connected to the vine and we don't share in that peace and that joy that's not coming, bearing fruit invisible in our life in some way that people see or sense, they're not going to become a Christ. If people were to follow you around all week, what kind of disciple would you make, Right? Secondly, a true disciple will be recognized by love. We know this. They'll know my disciples by the, the scripture, love your enemies. Love is everywhere in the thing that we are supposed to exude. Matthew 5, 44, love those who persecute you, Jesus. <laughs> Whoa! Uh, when's the last time you had some customer service issue and the company did you wrong and you're holding the receipt and showing and, and if the car wasn't fixed right? Uh, Oh, you're saying, Pastor, don't complain? I'm not saying don't complain, but don't be that guy. Love your enemies. And in John 13, 34, 35, Jesus says to love one another. How well do you love those in the body of Christ? Do we just come on Sundays to check off a box, say, I came and got fueled up, I'm ready for the week, or do you connect? See, I don't believe that the model of church that we're seeing in the some of the world today where everybody flocks to uh, something and they see it and then they leave. I believe that we are connected during the week. We are connected. And the, the next time, I think on Father's Day, I've been milling this over, we, you know, you ought to go do something great with your fathers. Or the, and, and the next time the church has a fellowship, we should have a great fellowship. We should hang out together. Or you should call somebody and, and, and hang out with them and celebrate the fact that you're following Jesus together. You love one another. Thirdly, the God-connected people experience the grace of God. I tell you what, we could not live without the grace of God, right? If you're abiding in the vine and you're a God-connected person, you understand that all of your failures, faults, all of your history, you don't have to lay in bed at night and beat yourself up over the head with it. Come on now. Don't do that. You have the grace of God. What other, who other, who, whose else grace do you need? Come on now. You say, oh, I wish I had grace for my brother or my parents. Or, but friends, if you have the grace of God, you can trust him. Now, people do bring healing. Look, look what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German pastor who ultimately gave his life um, for preaching against Hitler, but he wrote this, and I just want to read this whole little bit. It's so good. He said, happy are... Th they who have reached the end of the road 
we seek to tread, who are astonished to discover that by no means self-evident truth that grace is costly just because it is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Happy are the simple followers of Jesus Christ who have been overcome by this grace and are able to sing the praises of the all-sufficient grace of Christ with humbleness of heart. Happy are they who, knowing that grace, can live in the world without being a part of it, who by following Jesus Christ are so assured of their heavenly citizenship that they are truly free to live their lives in this world. Happy are they who know that discipleship simply means the life which springs from grace, and that grace simply means discipleship. Happy are they who have become Christians in the sense of the word, for the for them, the word of grace has provided a fount of mercy. What beautiful words. I wish I could say things so beautifully. In other words, grace makes us want to follow Jesus and do what pleases him. We're saved by grace through faith, and we know it's true, but grace leads us toward walking with Jesus and abiding in the vine, being God-connected naturally. It is the thing that pro propels us into that. It, it pushes us into that because when we realize, and you and I realize the filth that we are and, and that we are unworthy and his grace is more than enough, all of a sudden, boom, I'm healed, right? I have a new freedom. Our worship uh, privately and corporately should be sincere and joy-felt and, and desirous of God and joyous. And, but grace doesn't stop at the end of a 30-minute worship service, friends. Grace is for life. When we choose to live outside the vine, disconnected, we cheapen the grace of God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, we trample under our feet the blood of Christ. What a picture. What a horrible picture. The one that has so loved us so greatly and so immensely that we would abuse his blood in such a way. It's, a, it's amazing to think. The believer that owns costly grace and understands it is empowered by grace and we stay connected. We know what Jesus went through for us, that he loves us. According to Jesus, then, what does it mean to be a God-connected person, a person abiding in the vine? First of all, to deny myself and my will. Look at the way the writer Luke writes in the Gospel of Luke in, in chapter 14 and verse 26. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The measure is not that you deliberately want to hate somebody. I'm going to start hating Jesse so that I can love God more. No. It's a picture of that we love God so immensely, everybody else's love that we have for them seems like hate in comparison. That's what it means. Verse 27, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. There is something to considering the cost of being a disciple to being one connected to the vine. This is a part of transformation in a prayer life where the rubber meets the road. This is why we pray right here because the being connected to the cross, being connected to Jesus part makes us confront the will that we have and say, I need to surrender that. 
I need to lay that down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on to write uh, in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Quite a powerful statement. In other words, I am willing to lay down my wants, desires, passions, and interests at the foot of the cross because I want what God wants. I want what he desires. My identity will be in Jesus. I'll look like Jesus. I'll begin to sound, not that I'm going to, you know, like portrayal that we, <laughs> but I'll begin to sound like Jesus. I'll, I'll love what he loves and hate what he hates. I, my will, my desire, my wants, all will be what Jesus wants in me. This is an incredible mountain. If you look at that, you'll say, Pastor, I could never be that. I want to let you know something. You're right. For it is by grace you're saved through faith. And it is his mercy and grace every day that leads you one step higher and higher. And friends, you know, it is good that we have fellowship in the family of God because um, David has areas in his life where the maturity in Christ is that I aspire to, right? Or there's areas in, in Jesse's life that he has conquered that I aspire to, right? And we can spurn one another on toward, as Paul writes, toward good works that we are consistently pressing on higher and higher to become more and more like Jesus. Because, I mean, I come home, and, and, and I, I pray, and I come home, and, and my wife is a, is a person where I can tell all of the dump things to, and she can tell all of her dump things to me, right? We can share those dumpy things. Anybody have dumpy things? I'm sure nobody here has dumpy things except me. But I can whine and whine, and then I begin to think, Boy, I sound like the children in the middle of the wilderness, the children of Israel. Oh, where's this miserable food? I don't want to eat this garbage anymore. Give me some meat. You know, God sends them meat. I don't like the meat. You know? And then God swallows, opens the ground, swallows them up for lunch. You know, and it's like, God, don't let me be that person. I moan and complain, that's all I do. Anyway, but I am so grateful that, that he is making me. He's molding me, right? Live in obedience to the truth of God's word. The second, this is a compulsion that people that are abiding in the vine have. We have a direct interest in the scriptures. And that's why we love here at Abundant Life preaching through the scriptures expositorily. You can go on to nwlife.org and you can click on Pastor Sermon Blog and there's more than 200 sermons on there of series that we go through the Bible. There's video and the text of the sermons. We believe in the word of God and there's Many pastors, there's nearly 200 now from overseas that are connected to our sermon blog because of the Word of God. And we have Bibles in the church. A guy came by the church this last week. I sat in the sanctuary for an hour with him, prayed with him. He just wanted a Bible. We gave him a Bible, God's Word. Get it in you. Amen? But when we begin to share in that, in the women's small group, in the men's group, in the prayer services, in the, the Sunday mornings, and the, the focus on God's Word to study, we begin to take on the shape of what we're telling ourselves. You know, the, the saying is true. If you tell some, a lot, yourself a lie long enough, you'll begin to believe it to be true. The same is about truth. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A great quote goes like this discipleship is anything that causes what is believed in the heart to have demonstrable consequences in daily life how does the word of god impact your daily life your thinking the things that you do the decisions you make 
And finally, C, produce a good life. The third thing, John 15, 8 says, that This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In other words, fruit is the evidence that I am a follower of Jesus. Look at what the fruit is. The God-connected life produces some things. First of all, a deep desire to give up my expectations. Remember in Matthew 10, and Jesus says it again in Matthew 16, the same thing. Um, uh, Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Pretty, pretty compelling thing. In other words, I am willing to give up my expectations. I am willing to say, God, you alone are my expectation. Secondly, humility. Peter said, I will not deny you. <laughs> well, that worked out well for him, didn't it? No, it didn't work out so well. And the humility of it was in Matthew 16, Jesus said the same thing. If anyone must come after me, he must deny himself. There is a theme about discipleship in the scriptures from the gospels to say, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up what you want. This is the reason for prayer. This is the reason for the presence of God. Thirdly, a willingness to give all that I have. Don't these all sound the same? Sure they do. Mark 10, 21, Jesus looked at him and said to him, the, the rich man, remember this rich young guy comes to him, says, I've got a lot of stuff. What do I need? I've done all my prayers, praying, read the scriptures. I know everything. Jesus says, one thing you like, sell everything you have, give to the poor and follow me. Whoa, wait a minute. Give up everything that I got, my Corvette and my house and my, all my stuff and these rings that I'm wearing and all, all my motorcycle. God, you want me to give up everything and just come and follow you? The measure counting the cost is important. Jesus said earlier, if the guy started to build the building and didn't have enough money to finish, everybody's going to laugh at him, right? Counting the cost of following Jesus is this, friends. When we put Jesus first, he gives us different desires, new desires that satisfy completely and give joy. Commit to the Lord all that you do, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? Not that he'll give you just what you want, but that he will put them in there. Give you desires. The desire is the thing given. Fourthly, a heightened drive for ministry. You want to see people impacted by the gospel. Doesn't it, personally, I find it beautiful when, when someone, we have a conversation and someone has been in God's word or something, and, or they were in a church service and something just hits them and they go, wow, you know, the, the grace of God just bless, and, and they come to this new revelation you know, that, that God is this for them or whatever that it is, and, and I'm overjoyed. And all of a sudden we begin to say, wow, that ministry is, is working, that we're talking to one another about that's ministry. It's not standing up front holding a microphone. Paul said the same thing over and over again. He said that he experienced joy in ministry. The writer of 1 John in 1 John 1, 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That the joy of the person, that you and I have joy, when we hear that one another, we found some greatness from God that he has provided for us. I love it when people say, you know what God did? And all of a sudden, whoa, really? And we give him praise. Verse 11 of our text says, These things have I spoken to you, that what? My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be kind of there, a little bit, half full, just a little bit. He says that your joy may be full. How many want full joy? <laughs> full on joy. Sounds like a rock band. I'm going to start it, right? 
Most importantly, these words of Jesus are, are so important to us. They're the result of all that he has to say. He says, being my disciple will give you real joy. The word joy is defined in Webster's Dictionary as the emotion evoked by well-being or success or, or good fortune, by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Wow. Pretty insightful, old Webster. He was a Christ follower, by the way. The expression or exhibition of such an emotion, he goes on to write, a state of happiness. Let's look at the biblical understanding of joy. I want to do that. The God-connected life will experience lasting joy. Not just joy for a little while. Here's the rub. The cultivated relationship with Jesus by abiding in the vine requires the marks of a disciple. And discipleship disciplines of, of, of spending time in the presence of God, being with Jesus. That doesn't mean that we, our natural tendencies are, are, are such and such. They don't come and go. They're going to be there. But our natural tendencies, if we get to that place, are going to be just so simply to do and what pleases Christ and, and some purpose and fulfillment in the world that God gives. That joy that comes from God is a response, our response to see that fulfilled is following him. If we want that lasting joy, we're going to follow him. There's different times in life where people fall off the wagon, if you will, as Christians. And then that joy dissipates, it goes away. That, that interest in Jesus kind of goes by the wayside. The joy that the world offers is pale imitation compared to the true joy that only God can give because his joy is lasting. And it continues on and on. The joy that, that unsafe people have is an experience that comes and goes like a birthday party. It's, it's good for a while, but then it's going to go. The chocolate cake runs out eventually. If things are going well, I'm going to be filled with joy. I'm going to be happy. If things go my way, I'm going to be good. If my boss said kudos, if I get a raise, I'm going to be good. But when the difficult comes and, and there is no joy... In the book of Job, one of Job's friends is sitting around in his pity party said, uh, the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless for a moment? Yes. There can be no true joy apart from God. Whatever people know, love, and worship, that's what they find their joy in. And what we know, love, and worship, when we worship God, Love instills in us, and his joy comes in us, and we can, we can give then. Joy is a gift from God. Joy is the, one of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, right, who, who uh, comes into the heart of the believer. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, love, goodness, kindness, meekness, faith. All these things are, this is in the list of these things that the Holy Spirit produces. It's so interesting that abiding in the vine seems to require relationship with the Holy Spirit. Not just the word and words of God, not just good doctrine being preached from a pulpit that we could say amen to, but our actual cultivation of a relationship with the Holy Spirit through prayer and petitioning and waiting on God and staying there until we meet with him. One of the greatest things about following Jesus is the fact that God has given us his Holy Spirit, that he has given us his touch, that his spirit is right here in this room right now, that the creator of the universe that loves you and I, that made this place with air to breathe, gives us life by the presence of his Holy Spirit that is in this room right now today and is in your life and my life. 
that cultivated relationship with him is like any other relationship you would have in this world. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be weighed upon. You need to serve him like you would serve your loved one. You need to, to wait on them like you would wait. You need to listen to them like you would listen, hopefully, to your loved one. You, 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 we have these relationships in this world that are just a picture, just a, a small glimpse. And Jesus says, your love for me must seem like hate to, you know, the hate of those that, you know, that you love in this world. In other words, heighten that relationship. The goodness of God, Romans chapter 14, 17, Paul writes, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. All of this is connected, friends. Circumstances will not be able to steal your joy. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says that Christians can even be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This means that when we're in the midst of a situation that brings us great sorrow, that no matter what is happening, God is right there smack dab in the middle of it, and he can initiate joy when we're at the potential uh, to be tempted at our lowest moment. And I'm so grateful for that. We see this writing in several New Testament authors. James says, count it joy when you face trials of many kinds. Uh, Paul reminds us again in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, even if I am poured out or killed, he says, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial uh, offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you should be glad no matter what's going on with you and your persecution, but rejoice with me, he says. Uh, the apostle Peter wrote it, 1 Peter 4.13, sufferings that we share in Christ's sufferings so that we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The glory is the Holy Spirit's work to reveal the presence of Jesus in our lives. I got to tell you, this will preach. The Holy Spirit's connected to this abiding stuff. Sin steals joy. Sin is the thing that kills and begins to infect the, the branch. The sin comes in through lots of different ways. There's, there's infections and bacteria. There's bugs. There's all kinds of things that can come up on an individual branch to make it sick and pass one thing to another. It can touch the ground where some other plants are that cause some unsavory things because it will take, begin to take on some of those properties of the other plants. But I gotta tell you something, that when the branch is allowed, when we allow our branch, our lives, to be cultivated by God, to be nurtured, to be pruned, where he comes in his word, he says, wait on me, turn off the computer, turn off your phone, go for a walk, wait on me, talk to me, spend time with me. Sin damages that relationship, it infects it, it causes, it is the only thing that will cause that, that branch to wither up and have to be pruned. Ultimately, that Jesus is talking about a backslidden condition where one is no longer interested in Jesus at all. The God-connected, though, they do something else. They produce life and a rejoicing life. A rejoicing life. And, and I like the word joy, but rejoice? Now, that's a good one. Webster says rejoice means to do this, to feel joy or, or great delight. Great delight, right? There are several passages in the New Testament where Paul instructs us to rejoice. Because we have joy, we're to rejoice. We're supposed to do something with that joy. And you know how it comes out? It comes out through worship. 
It comes out through prayer, a greater desire for the word of God, a greater desire for the presence of God. Philippians 3, 1 and 4, 4, both say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We were at Bible quiz competition at Life Center when I was a youth. And, and we were all sitting there and the, the buzzers were at our fingertips and we had to memorize Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians for this particular season. And so we memorized these books in the Bible. And the question was, quote Philippians 4, 4, and you have to be fast. You have to hit that buzzer right there. And I thought for a second, I'm going to do this creatively. So I rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I won! Anyway, I was in it. It didn't matter. But rejoice! We're supposed to rejoice. We're supposed to show it to, to make sure it echoes from our life. Paul wrote, writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for your life, he says. What beautiful words. I am so glad for the word of God. I hope that we're talking about a God that makes you want to pray, right? We're talking about a God who makes you want to seek him and worship him. Why is rejoicing important? Because it's the evidence of a cultivated relationship with the vine. That we are, are able to, it means that we are to remain steadfast in our knowledge that God is in his strength and comfort to us no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Worship can come out by crying. Each one of my boys were born. I cried. They were so beautiful. They still are. And I looked at that, and I, 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 it was a time of expression of worship. I, I can't hardly go through one episode of The Chosen without crying and worshiping. I feel like my heart's being ripped out from inside me. Why? Because I identify. I'm a follower of Jesus. I love Jesus, and so it's speaking to my life. Wherever people know, love, and worship God, his love becomes instilled in them. And I'm glad to say that abundant life is such a place. You people are so good at that. I love to see your expressions of worship and to be, uh, to be engaged with the Lord. Second Chronicles 30, 26 says, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon to the time of David, the king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. So the establishment of what God was doing in that moment, what happened? Put that aside for a moment. What exactly happened? The response was that they were filled with joy because God did something. So what do we do today? I think two things. Can we make a renewed commitment to God to live the God-connected life in a greater way? No matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, is there some measure of thing the Lord has been showing you to increase that in you? And secondly, make a renewed commitment to be in the presence of God continually. Do you cultivate time in the presence of God? Do you wait on him? Last week we talked about two ways that God's presence is revealed. There's a manifest presence of God where, like wicked King Saul, when he was at his most wicked point, the Holy Spirit came on him and he prophesied, right? In the Old Testament, before Jesus came and, and ascended to heaven and sent the work of the Holy Spirit in this fashion, God has never changed. His Holy Spirit's operations never change. He, the dispensation is unique since Jesus ascended to heaven though but the Holy Spirit came on prophets and they prophesied and then the Holy Spirit the Bible says departed in the Old Testament in the New Testament the Holy Spirit remains so I am grateful for the manifest presence of God when we seek him and we experience a dose of the Holy Ghost if you, the old Pentecostals used to say that right I praise God for those moments 
But the cultivated presence of God is abiding in the vine. It is spending time with Jesus on purpose so that when you don't feel like it, his strength energizes you. Because there will be a lot of moments in life where we don't feel like it. I said on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, I don't always feel like going to church. I think I blew some people away. I don't really feel that way, but sometimes it's harder than others. And I think that the goodness of God is that his grace is always sufficient, no matter what we're facing. And when we cultivate that time with him, spend time with him, he gives the peace and joy.